Welcome to Thought Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Raghu Kassa. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Karen Lloyd. Dr. Lloyd is an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology at the University of Tennessee. Her research in, integrates geomicrobiology, molecular biology, and geochemistry to determine how microorganisms influence marine geochemical cycles. The goal is to link uncultivated microorganisms to their geochemical functions and explore how these communities react to changing environmental conditions. So please enjoy listening to Dr. Lloyd. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you for being on this podcast. Sorry for the little technical difficulties of getting everything, um, getting everything figured out. But um, it looks like everything is uh, working. And so um, we can go ahead and do the podcast. Um, so how have you been? You said you were in Iceland, Antarctica, somewhere up north? <laughs> yeah, I was in Iceland last week. Um, so there's this recent eruption that started midway through March. Mm -hmm. And it's a really exciting eruption because it's a brand new eruption. It's not an old volcano that was... Um, had been quiet for a while. It's sort of fresh out of nowhere. Um, so you get to see lava sort of covering areas of the land that haven't seen lavas in hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, can, I can see the scientific reason why we we're there if you're curious, because I, because, you know, I work on microbes. So the, the question that we had was, um, there are lots of hot springs on the flanks of these volcanoes. And so what we want, one of the outstanding questions that we really don't have a good handle on is how much do seismicity or earth, like earthquakes or um, volcanic eruptions drive changes in the subsurface geochemistry that drive fluid movements? How, do they do they matter for these subsurface microbial ecosystems? So we were there. Mm -hmm. I think that's a cool um, topic that you're researching. And um, uh, how long was the trip? Was it like a few months or no. were you just out there for <laughs> four days? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it was really short. Um, this is uh, maybe I can give like a plug for Iceland, but you know, it's Iceland, um, a big part of their economy is, has always been tourism. And so that's, of course, taken a hit with COVID. Um, but they were one of the first countries to, to say vaccinated people are welcome. And so it's very organized. Um, it's a short trip. They're only four hours ahead of the East Coast because they're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They're not as far as Europe. Yeah. So um, you can actually find pretty cheap tickets, too. And um, this volcano that has recently started erupting is a short drive, like an hour away from the main city of Reykjavik. So, mm -hmm. and, and it's very photogenic. Okay, it's yeah. One of the most beautiful volcanoes I've ever seen. I mean, it's just totally lovely and it's not posing any sort of hazard. So it's a very polite volcano. So if you, if you have the itch to travel and you're vaccinated, I highly, highly recommend finding yourself a cheap flight and going to Iceland. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been in Knoxville for the past few weeks and um, during the weekend, I've been going to the Smoky Mountains and the Appalachian Trail. So that's kind of been my getaway. Very nice. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Did you enjoy it? It was good. Um, I uh, went for the past two weekends and the one of the weekends we ended up hiking about 15 miles 
um, and backpacking and camping. And then the other time, weekend I went, we hiked about 12 miles. So I've, uh, I've enjoyed it and it's nice. The weather's great and uh, the views are great. So Smoky Mountains are awesome. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, uh, so starting the podcast, um, I wanted to ask a little bit about your background and um, try to get a little introduction into how you got into microbiology and um, how you got to where you are. Um, so I, I really got interested in microbiology when I did a summer course as a high school student at North Carolina Central University. There was a PhD student there who would who told us that microbes are not just the things that cause disease, that they're actually these like secret super powered engines that are driving a lot of earth systems. They're running all the parts of our body. They're involved in almost everything important going on in earth systems. And I just was hooked um, when I was a high school student. I just found that fascinating that they're these like, well, often invisible sort of beings working behind the scenes to make to make things go. Mm -hmm. I'm just in awe of the power of them. Yeah, yeah. And when you um, started uh, in undergrad and in grad school, is there a difference between studying microbiology as an undergrad and then as a grad student and then a fellow like postgrad student, like what what is the transition or what what is how is how does the study of microbiology differ from an undergrad to a doctoral student? Yeah, oh, I I myself have never studied microbiology. OK, oh. <laughs> I did biochemistry as an oh, undergrad okay. and then okay. I did um, oceanography. It's called marine sciences, the program that I did at the University of North Carolina. So I. I came to microbiology laterally from. Okay. Okay. But I mean, I'm now a professor in a microbiology department, so I know what it's like because I teach the undergrads now in, in microbiology. But um, I think that it's the answer to that question is the same as the answer for any other field where when you're an undergrad, you're learning about a wide breadth of things in this field. And then mm -hmm. when you do a master's or a PhD, you're really narrowing in and becoming an expert in a, just a, a part of it. Mm -hmm. And when you were doing your grad, grad school work, were you also uh, going to different, um, like for example, studying oceanography, were you going to different like Atlantic or Pacific o oceans and getting samples as well? Mm -hmm. I went to both of those oceans in my PhD. No, I guess I just went to the Pacific Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico was where okay. I did my work for my PhD. Okay, cool, cool. And getting into some of the um, uh, extreme microbes that you study. So you've studied in the past uh, microbes that from Costa Rica, like the volcanoes of Costa Rica. You were saying you were in Iceland. Um, and were you also in Svalbard in Norway? Yeah. That's, that's really cool because the only thing I know about Svalbard is like, it's the northernmost country and it holds like a seed vault for all the seeds. Yeah. Um, can you talk about like one being in some of these extreme environments and um, getting to a chance to study the microbes in those environments? Yeah. So Svalbard is not actually a country. Oh, it, it's um, okay. it's a territory that is officially given to Norway to administer um, okay. the Treaty of Versailles 
gave it to Norway. Um, but there's part of the treaty, part of the agreement is that Norway, it's not technically Norway. So they can't, um, they don't have full sovereignty to the, to the territory. So there's a city in Svalbard that is Russian. That's okay. Russian, and it actually is administered by Russia. So it's wow. a weird, it's, it's a very, like, it's strange to be sort of outside of governments there. And so we went, um, Norway is actually closed. I'm actually not sure about today, but at the time that we went in March, it was closed to anyone from the United States, whether you were vaccinated or not, um, or whether you tested negative for COVID. You just were not allowed to go to Norway. Um, but we found a loophole because the governor of Svalbard said, actually, I'm making an exception for researchers coming to study Svalbard. And mm -hmm. I'm making a request. So we had a letter, we held these letters, clutched these letters in our hands when our plane landed all groggy and presented them to the border patrol people or the border officer people. And, um, and it said, basically the governor acknowledged that they did not have the rights to demand that Norway let us in for the purposes of quarantining on our way to, to Svalbard, but would they please do it? Yeah. <laughs> so they did, they let us in. And so we got to hang out in a ho in hotel rooms for 10 days in Oslo, which is actually really lovely. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then we went up to Svalbard, which is a really, truly amazing, um, one-of-a-kind place. Mm -hmm. Very cool. It's great that you get to see, like, all these, like, different, um, like, locations. Um, I think that's one of the coolest parts of what you do. What about um, the microbes that you've um, sampled in these locations? Uh, are, are there any similarities between the microbes that are living in these, the cold environments versus the hot environments? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how far back in the evolutionary time you wanna go. I mean, at some point, everything's related. Um, mm -hmm. But we do see, you know, we'll see things from the same phylum for sure in these different types of, of places, but we tend to see pretty different microbial communities. I mean, it, it's, they are specialized enough that we don't see full overlap in the types of microbes that we see in, in mm -hmm. like, hot versus cold. Mm -hmm. And have you studied how these microbes are able to survive in like high versus low temperature, um, different oxygen levels, um, different pressures, have they, um, because when you look at them, they're the size of less than a nanometer or so, or a few nanometers. They're, um, they're like, they're usually about a, a micron. A micron, okay. Um, and so I would think that in these harsh conditions, they would just be wiped out, but how have they been able to survive these extreme environments? Do you know? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different strategies for dealing with different sorts of extremes. And we actually can learn a lot about it from microbes that are found just, you know, in our guts or in sort of normal places, because those microbes need to be able to deal with extreme environments sometimes too. Um, to E. coli that wants to make us sick after it's been, you know, released out into the rivers, it needs to be able to survive osmotic shock because it, it really wants to live in our guts with salt. And so it has to deal with no salt out in the in the river so that it can infect us again. Um, so, so we've learned that from those ones, but um, there's certain things like um, archaea have very special lipid membranes. So mm -hmm. if you learned like the standard way to build a lipid membrane in all of animal cells and, and bacteria is that we have these um, ether linked lipids, I'm sorry, these uh, glycerol linked lipids um, 
they have a different linkage. And in fact, the two sides of their lipid bilayer are actually connected to each other. And so it sort of makes them more stable. And they often have a big protein um, S layer outside them, which if you learned in microbiology, the difference between a gram positive and a gram negative. And, you know, for a long time, we thought that all microbes could be either gram positive or gram negative. That's not true at all. Archaea are something else entirely. Um, they don't have um, a big wall of peptidoglycan. They have a big wall of proteins instead. So mm -hmm. these, these are sort of like part of their defenses. Um, and there's plenty of like heat shock proteins and lots of machinery inside the cell to deal with heat and to refold um, proteins and, and stuff like that. Um, there's just a lot. And a lot of a lot of these defense mechanisms have to do with making sure the, the membranes stay fluid um, without falling apart. And um, there's just a lot to it. Yeah. I think it's incredible, like looking when you look at some of these small organisms, they've been able to survive for millions of years in these kind of harsh conditions, and they're continue to, continuing to survive. I, th I just think that's um, incredible. Um, and with the uh, microbes, are, there, are they able to communicate with the microbes that are next to them? Do they have some kind of um, symbiotic relationship in order for them to survive those conditions? We, that, that is a really hard question to answer. Um, we're working on that. I, I presume that they do, just because almost everything we, we see out in nature talks to each other. They have things like corn sensing, which is basically like you send out a little signal flashing and saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And then when enough microbes get together and say, I'm here, then everybody all at once does a function together. It's like, okay, we have a quorum, let's go forth and do the thing. Um, so we see that happening at many levels in environmental microbes and also symbioses where they depend on each other. And we've done some work where we inferred that there's some dependency on maybe sharing amino acids as a um, nutritional substrate between these starving microbes in 8,000 year old sediment in the Baltic Sea. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a guess. I mean, we're, we're inferring that based yeah. on what we see. I mean, we, we go pretty far to do it. I mean, we can, we can pull out DNA, RNA, proteins, and metabolites from these cells as they are out in, in this 8,000 year old sediment. So we can, when we look at that range of biomolecules, we basically have to knit together the cell and say, what was the cell state and mm -hmm. sampling? And we may be guessing wrong, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so once you get a sample of these microbes, and you bring them back to the lab. Um, can you talk about the process to culture the microbes that you bring, or is it? Um, do you choose certain microbes to culture over others? Um, how do they survive um, in a lab, and do they act differently in a lab compared to how they do outside? I usually don't culture them at all. Okay. Remember one thing I want to do when I get them up to the surface or out of wherever they are is kill them. Okay. <laughs> okay. If they're, dead, if they're dead, then they're like preserved in the state that they were. And so okay. that, that is my research approach is to try to like get them to stop, you know, mm -hmm. stop all metabolic activity, like just hold still and then let me assess your biomolecules and see what, what you were doing when you were out in nature. Mm -hmm. I do culture things too, just not as much. Do you freeze them to get them to stop? 
Yeah. So freezing is a great way to do it. Although sometimes if you're in a remote location, it's hard to get something that cold. Or if you're at the bottom of the sea, you can't freeze them immediately. So we have this really concentrated ionic solution called RNA later that we can mm -hmm. douse them in and that kills them too. Okay. Okay. And once you, um, once you are able to study them, do you isolate or do you look at the, I think it was the 16S RNA unit to try to um, identify where they are in the um, G, G, uh, like the species, what like what genus and species are they and where do they fall in the phylum? Is that how you try to go about it? Yeah, and we chose that gene basically for historical reasons. That ended up being the first gene that people started looking at. And so now we have a big database of all the organisms in that gene. And so we just continue looking at that gene. And what, what the gene encodes is part of the ribosome. And the ribosome, of course, is this machinery that makes all the proteins in every living cell, as far as we know. And so it means that it's pretty evolutionarily stable. And so it doesn't change, because any little change is going to be lethal to the cell. So mm -hmm. um, it's changing very, very slowly. And so it's, it's the kind of gene that we can use to tell the difference between something that's way far away on the tree of life from something else. Like mm -hmm. we wouldn't use our version of 16S in our, in our bodies. It's called 18S because it's slightly bigger. Like we couldn't use that to tell apart humans from each other because ours are all identical. And I mm -hmm. think it's even almost identical with a lot of other animals too. Mm -hmm. But we use it because we're looking at really deep evolutionary relationships and it's good for that. Mm -hmm. And when you compare different microbes, are there like, do they share similarities or are they completely different in terms of, this microbe that you found here is genetically completely different than the than another microbe. Um, how close are they genetically speaking? Well, we can find things that are, well, I don't know what our, our closest thing would be, but we, to some extent, we always find differences. Like they're okay. not identical, mm -hmm. but but we do see, I mean, we, they're similar enough that we can say, oh, then this is in this family. This is a disulfococcus or mm -hmm. something like this. We know the genus of this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can know the species too. Mm -hmm. And once you, once you find them, how do you, do you get to name them? Or, because I know that uh, part of the, part of discovering a new species is getting, I guess, a chance to name it. Yeah. How does it work with, um, uh, prokaryotes that are undiscovered or that don't have a phylum, do you just generally class them into a phylum and, or do you have to go like, okay, new species, this new species, that, and then just try to name them or? You have hit on a nerve. Like we are in turmoil right now because okay. we had this microbiology had a beautiful system of nomenclature mm -hmm. and taxonomy and how we determine what, what a new microbe is and what it is named. To do that, you have to submit your name officially to this international body of, of scientists who review your name and decide whether you can have this name or not. It's very organized and it's awesome. To do this, you have to have a pure culture. So you need a microbe that grows fast without any other microbe around, which mm -hmm. is hard to come by out of nature. <laughs> So it's a tiny subset of microbes that fit the narrow, narrow requirements for naming by the international, this organized society. The organized society recently held, they recognize the problem because people like me have been 
wringing our fists all the time and saying, you're missing all the diversity of life and we need a not naming system for the rest of it. Like help us because currently it's like anybody can just write a new name in their paper. And if your paper gets accepted, then that's the new name. And it's just, it's the wild west and people are renaming things. It's just a big mess. And um, so they recently held a vote, um, I believe last summer, to determine whether they were going to allow type material for new names that were not from pure cultures. Mm -hmm. And they thought about it carefully and they said no. Oh. <laughs> and here we are. So you Why have. You? I don't know. Yes. So then you have like a bunch of uh, different species of microbes that are known to be out there, but they can't be named or classified or, um, or even if you're able to study them, you can't say this organism has these traits because you can't name it. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's a real problem. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're of course moving forward and we give things names, but mm -hmm. none of it is official and none of it is organized. And it means that things get renamed all the time and it's, it's not great. Another question that I had was whenever you study these species, they're um, millions of years old, right? Are you talking about an individual or a lineage? Or a lineage. I, I was going to ask, like, when a, when a lineage of microbes, when they, like, stop expressing a gene or they lose a gene, do they become a new species or are they the same species that have just stopped expressing that gene? So if you're talking about cultures, well, okay, if you're talking about expression, like they still have the gene, they just don't turn it into mRNA or proteins ever, then it's not going to be a new species because that's all determined based on, well, a mixture of their genes and their physiology. <laughs> but it's probably not just changing one gene. If you, even if you still, especially if you still have it in your genome, is not going to make a new species. <laughs> um, the, if you have cultures, if you're following the official rules, then a 70% similarity between two, you know, basically if they're more different than 70% 70, 70 across their entire genome, then that's one of the criteria to determine that it's a new species. Mm -hmm. And have you been able to have the microbes that you've studied, have they, um, I guess, I guess this is a hard question to ask, but evolutionarily speaking, have certain microbes change like expressed fewer than 70 percent of their genome or um i don't know what percentage of their genomes they're capable of expressing that's an interesting okay. question. and maybe that someone knows that <laughs> it's just yeah. not me um but i mean it's definitely true that that some microbes have very streamlined genomes and they only have what they need and they're probably expressing it all the time because they only have essential stuff <laughs> and others have really huge genomes and they just kind of hang on to everything like a order yeah um and then how do you determine the age of a microbe that you've uh sampled um do you carbon date them because i know carbon dating is more for fossilization but for something that's living is there a accurate way to determine how old it is there is not we don't have a good way to do so we have to infer that from looking at the total amount of energy that's available to the system, knowing how much energy it takes to turn over the carbon biomass in a cell, and then estimating how old, on average, the whole population must be. Mm -hmm. But carbon dating is something that we use frequently. 
Um, if you work in very old systems, carbon, it turns out, is um, often very young. Mm -hmm. um, it has a half-life of only 5,000 years. So a lot of the places that I work in, it's too old to do carbon dating. You have mm -hmm. to go to other radionuclides, other things that decay more slowly. Because there's a whole raft. It's not just carbon. There's lots and lots of elements that have a very regular radioactive decay. So once you've, once you've gotten older than carbon, you can move on to the next thing. Okay. And how, with the samples that you've collected, approximately, like, how old are they, if that's a fair question to ask? How old are the microbes or the sediments or? The, the microbes, the, yeah, the microbes. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, you know, the, the age thing is, is, it's an inference based on what is available to this community in, in saying, I mean, that measurement, like the total energy that's available to them is a pretty solid measurement because we can see through the layers, we can measure the sedimentation rate of marine sediments pretty well, knowing the radioactive decay of, of various different radionuclides. And then from that, we can say, this is the rate at which they're using a particular chemical. And we know just how much energy is inherently available on the chemicals. So then we can say, they have this much energy available. And mm -hmm. it turns out it's enough energy to make a new cell next millennium. Okay. Oh, that's, that's... So from that, that's how we infer that the mm -hmm. cells are really old, just because they don't have enough energy to be young. Mm -hmm. But it's but it's a guess. We can't measure it directly. And do these cells, are they trying to replicate or are they trying to just maintain their function, uh, structure? Well, if you're in a starvation situation, making a new daughter cell is like making competition for yourself. Mm -hmm. So there's probably some some reasons not to do a lot of cell divisions in these situations. And they're mm -hmm. probably just mostly at a maintenance energy, just replacing broken parts. Mm -hmm. And do you think um, like this maintenance of uh, parts, do you think that these techniques can be applied to cultured cells? Uh, for example, cells that aren't prokaryotic, um, found in extreme environments, can they be uh, applied to uh, human stem cells or other cells that aren't in that lineage? Sort of to keep them in stasis? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that would be really interesting. I mean, I think that one thing that we need to learn more about is the mechanisms by which, like how they manage to do this, how they, they stay in stasis for so long. Um, we have, we have a couple of ideas um, that may or may not be true, but they're just things that have popped out of the data. And one is that they seem to have a lot of this um, osmolite called triolose. And so it could be that sometimes the cells are sort of pickled in this osmolite triolose and that, that preserves them. Um, but we already do preservation techniques that are similar to that with cells that we maintain. So if you put, um, if you have a growing culture in lab and you put a cell stock at, in the minus 80 degrees Celsius freezer, you put it in glycerol first. And so mm -hmm. it serves a similar function. Mm -hmm. And then there's also um, certain other, like for example, spore-forming spore uh, uh, microbes that once they form a spore, they can kind of go into, go into stasis and um, stay in that uh, in that form for extended period of time as well. But there's an interesting thing about spores, and this is pointed out by um, Rick Morita in the 90s, 
that, you know, a spore is really not active. They can't do anything to maintain themselves. So they're a great way to hunker down for a year. But mm -hmm. if you need to hunker down for a thousand years, then you need to be active. You can't be dormant because mm -hmm. you have to be working to maintain yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Those are actually not a great super long-term strategy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's that's interesting to learn. Um, and then, uh, so, so when, um, when these microbes, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. Um, uh, I was going to ask, um, so when you trace these, uh, the lineage back, um, are there other, um, I mean, let me just think about how to ask this. Are they, uh, do certain microbacteria sh share the same um, characteristics or have they all evolved different ways of surviving these harsh conditions? Um, for example, you said that um, certain, these certain prokaryotes, they take, they're in a state of uh, starvation mode, so they do everything they can to replace old parts. But are the, have you seen microbes that have been able to survive comfortably in these harsh environments? I well, comfort is an interesting word. I think they're all pretty comfortable. I mean, it's a it's a good gig. They've got enough. They can they can live for a while. You know, they don't do much. But it's kind of like um, I don't know if you ever watched The Big Lebowski. But I think sort of the, the point of the Big Lebowski is that the dude just wants to abide. He doesn't want to like do anything. He's not going to like make an impact on the world. So, you know, they're kind of like that. You know, you can yeah. find some happiness in, in nothing. Doing sure. nothing. Yeah. yeah. So, but I don't, I mean, we don't have enough. We don't see any evidence that there's some go-getters around who are like really striving and growing and stuff. Um, they were looking over long enough timescales that if somebody did, sort of get their their motor running and started really growing, then you just see them take over. So you do, I mean, you do see parts, if you look down sediment columns in different parts of the ocean, there will be sort of layers of stuff that cause a bloom to happen. So you'll see that, that you get some go-getters when there's food. Mm -hmm. And do you think that these cells, if you starve them of zero energy, do you think they'll eventually die? Like, yeah. have you, have you tested that? Like, that's, I mean, that's a cool thing to do to a prokaryote, but have you, uh, have you done that my, experiment? No, I mean, I, I can say just from first principles, if there is zero energy available for a long enough period of time, every living thing will die. Any living thing will die. Just like yeah. Um, yeah, they're definitely killable for sure. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't tend to study them alive anyway, so. And the last question that I wanted to ask was with with what you've studied and the research that you've done, do you think there's evidence to suggest that antimicrobial life can grow on other planets or in places that we haven't really explored yet? You said antimicrobial life? Or um, micro, sorry. You're doing, you're thinking about medicine. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Microbial life on yeah. other planets. Yeah. 
absolutely. I mean, I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be microbes and, and underneath the ice caps of Europa or even on Titan. Um, they could still be in the subsurface of Mars as well. So, you know, I just, there's really nowhere we go on Earth that we don't find some microbe living. And given the, their ubiquity on Earth, it just makes sense that they've got to be on some other planetary body. So I, we don't have evidence for it. That, that we do not have. But I absolutely think that they're out there somewhere. Okay. Cool. Um, well, those were all the questions that I had. So it was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you so much for doing this podcast, even though we had some technical difficulties in the beginning. Yeah. No, glad it worked out. Good luck. Thank you so much for tuning into Thought Bubble Podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. Please be sure to tune in next time, and I hope you have a great day.